0: Why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger. And terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give you the nations of the earth as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O King, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. I bless her all who take refuge in Him. Our Father, we are reminded on this weekend of. The great tragedy that took place some 20 years ago of a religion that hates Jewish people and hates Christians, that denies the very truth that we just read. But you are sovereign in the heavens above, and while men may plot and scheme against your ways, someday you will speak in your wrath and in your anger. We pray that we would warn people with compassion and grace in our hearts, as someone has warned us, to exhort them, to encourage them of that one whom is begotten, man of man, God of God, true God, true man, the one whom you said someday all the nations will acknowledge. May they do homage to the Son. Now, our Father, in this day of growing evil, we want to gurn up, gird up our loins with truth. We want to pay close attention. Please put all the distractions out of our minds. We are here to worship you, and you don't deserve a double-minded worship. So as we open your word, open our hearts to its truth. Come and help me and fill me, and I pray tonight, Father, that you would bring people to meet the pastor some who need a church home, some who have no assurance of salvation. May your blessing by the Spirit of God be at work, because unless you build the house, we labor in vain who build it. So I pray for your strength this morning. Thank you that in weakness there is strength. Come and fill me and anoint me and use me. For Christ's sake, I pray. Amen. I want to invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 19. If you're here for the first time... You'll be interested to know that we just finished a verse-by-verse exposition of the letter of James, and before the fall ends, we hope, God willing, to begin an Old Testament book. But I want to remind you that twice over in the prophet Jeremiah, it's noted that the people in his day had fallen to such a low spiritual level that he said they do not even know how to blush. There were no red faces in Jeremiah's day. And sadly, the things that used to make the average American blush, the things that used to shock us, we now are entertained by it. And so we are doing a series on morality. We began this series with King David from Second Kings 11 and 12, and we addressed the subject of avoiding moral failure as we studied his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. Then we move to John chapter 8, and we address the subject of finding moral forgiveness, as we looked at the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and thrown before Christ there in the temple precincts. Then from there, we went to Genesis 38, where we dealt with the subject of reaping moral compromise, and we studied Judah and his sin of wickedness with his own daughter-in-law, And then last time, if you were here from Genesis 39, we spoke on the subject of achieving moral victory as we studied the life of Joseph. And you can see the topic this morning is confronting moral perversion. Confronting moral perversion. It is widespread in our day. And we live in a day where more and more Christians are afraid to speak up for what is right because they're afraid of what people might think, and they really fear man more than they fear God. And so the last president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, a pastor of a church in Durham, North Carolina, and now his predecessor, Ed Litton, they both said virtually the same words. That was a controversy in itself. But J.D. Greer said this and I quote, he's preaching on the subject of homosexuality. We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what the Bible shouts about. The Bible appears to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to the fact that it shouts about materialism and religious pride. I hope to prove to you this morning God never whispers about sexual sin because it is so harmful to people, but sometimes pastors want to like to be liked, and they're afraid of what people might think, especially if there are people in the congregation that have family members and friends that are caught up in this lifestyle. And so we have churches in America that are for homosexuality, we have churches that are against homosexuality, and a growing number of evangelical churches that are debating and are squishy over the issue of homosexuality. Look, how can you debate this issue? It's an issue of authority. Is the Bible the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, eternal Word of God? If it is, if it's the only book God wrote, then we have a plumb line by which we can measure what is true and what is false. And of course, added to the fact that the church is sending uh, an indistinct message, we have our government that is openly aggressive towards those who would speak against homosexuality. And so both the Department of Education and the Department of Justice issued a joint statement across America from the grammar school to the university that said, quote, transgender students are to enjoy a supportive, safe, and non discriminatory school environment. There is no room in our schools for discrimination of any kind, including discrimination against transgender students on the basis of their sex. And to put some teeth... Into their ordinance, the Departments of Education and Justice said that those who would differ with this will lose federal funding and will be sued. Now, I've read the government document. I spent about an hour one day reading it. I'm not going to read it to you this morning, but it is very specific down to bathrooms, shower rooms, field trips, and dormitories. You almost have to be dead or just sound asleep, not to know that this is no small issue in our nation and in our world. And so for me as a pastor to teach about this subject, or for Christians to affirm what the Bible says about the LGBTQ plus lifestyle, you are basically dropping a culturally explosive bomb. When you call this a perversion and an inversion of the way God made men and women, you are looked at with great disdain. And there's probably not a person listening to me this morning who doesn't know someone who is gay. Maybe it's a son, it's a daughter, a friend, a coworker, And you may be afraid under the banner of love to address this issue in a straightforward way. But when you do not tell people the truth, you are not loving them, you are doing them a gross disservice because it is only as we hold the law of God up, which the Scripture calls God's tutor, God's schoolmaster to lead us to faith in Christ, it is only as people see clearly what the standard is that they will see their need for forgiveness. And so you harm your loved ones, you harm your nation, and you end up inviting really God's judgment on a people. But we're going to see this morning that when heterosexual immorality is widespread, then a nation will soon embrace homosexual perversion. And more and more Americans are willing to adopt this because their own heterosexual morals are deficient to what God says. Now, let me just say, if this is your first Sunday, I preached four messages on heterosexual immorality, and there'll be just one message in this series on homosexual perversion. So don't think that I'm picking on someone. And again, you hear mixed messages and denominations amongst people who call themselves Bible-believing Christians, and they've gotten very squishy. They cannot definitively, clearly in love, with kindness and gentleness, say what God has said. Now, God is long suffering and God is patient, but there comes a time when the dam of God's mercy breaks to his wrath. King David spoke of such a thing in Psalm 103. Listen to these words. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Well, we see in Genesis chapter 19, God letting his anger go. Now, let me set the context. If you turn back a page in your Bible to Genesis chapter 18, we're given the record of God coming to Abraham in telling him that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at chapter 18 and verse 20. There we read, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Circle that word, outcry. And their sin is exceedingly grave. Then if you turn back to our text here in the 19th chapter, listen to the words of chapter 19 and verse 13. The angels said to Lot, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry, there it is again, circle it, because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So twice over, God personifies the heinousness of homosexuality by reminding us that it has reached the heir's of God in heaven. There's an outcry, and this outcry is what tips the scales of God's mercy into His wrath. It's a sobering thought to consider that there are things that are heard in heaven's city that we don't hear. There's an outcry, and I wonder what God hears coming from Atlanta in Chicago and New York and Boston and Washington and Charleston and maybe even our own city here. Well, in Abraham's day, there was a horrendous outcry such that God said, I'm going to destroy the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And never before or since has God ever brought fire and brimstone down from heaven. And the New Testament, twice over, reminds us that God did this as an example to let us know how He feels about this sin. I'm going to ask you to jot down a lot of Scripture along the way, but we're told that in 2 Peter 2.6 and in Jude verse 7, that this is an example of how God feels about the sin of sodomy. And sometimes God does something in Scripture just once to let you know, about what he thinks. Now, if you're following the outline, and there's one in the bulletin if you're here for the first time or one online, I want us first to consider the unholy sin of Sodom. And let me just say in advance that this chapter deals with some issues that are not pleasant to deal with, but let me assure the parents here this morning with young children that just like we've seen in this entire series, that the Spirit of God can present truth without hedging and present it in such a way that it's presented in a godly and in a wholesome manner that will not violate the principles of your children. So first, I want us to see that the sin of homosexuality was a prevalent sin. It was a prevalent sin. Now, Genesis 19 is the very first time in the Bible that God deals with this subject of the LGBTQ plus lifestyle, and we're going to use this passage of Scripture as a springboard to address it in a broader sense. These are people in Sodom and Gomorrah who had come out of the closet. They were no longer hiding their sin. They were no longer ashamed of it, which was true for the most part of Americans 35 years ago. This had become a sin that was now flaunted in Sodom, and it had really become the epitome of gay pride. Notice how the chapter opens. In verse 1, we're told now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now, the Bible teaches that angels sometimes come in the appearance of a human. And by the way, they always come in the male gender. So, I know we see pictures of Women angels with long flowing hair, but there's not a single woman angel anywhere in the Bible. Now, it's possible there could be women angels, but I'm just telling you that the picture that God gives of angels is they're always revealed in the male gender, and they can come and they look so human, as the men of Sodom saw these two men, that you don't know they're always angels. The writer of the Hebrews says that you can be entertaining an angel You can be showing hospitality to an angel and not even know it. And of course, I think it's interesting to note who's absent. In Genesis 18 and verse 2, when God brings the announcement of coming judgment, we're told, and when he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And if you study Genesis 18 carefully, you discover that there are two normal, regular angels, I suppose we could say, and one who is unique, he's called the angel of the Lord, the angel of Jehovah, the angel of Yahweh. He is the second person of the Trinity. Before Jesus incarnated himself in human flesh, there are a number of times when God would come as the angel of the Lord. And so if you do a study on the angel of the Lord, and I have a whole series of messages on him in our course on angelology, that is free. People say, how much does it cost? It's free. All the messages are downloadable, the notes are downloadable. Now, if you want the hard copies, then you can pay for them. But one of the in-depth messages concerns the angel of the Lord, who's called God in Holy Scripture. Well, which member of the Godhead is he? He is God the Son. And that's why after Jesus incarnates himself in, at Bethlehem, you never see the angel of the Lord again appear. But he's not present here in chapter 19. Why is that? Why just two of the angels? Well, I think among other things, God is reminding us that he cannot fellowship with a believer because Lot is a believer. You may not recognize it, but let the Scripture interpret the Scripture. And in 2 Peter 2, we learn that Lot was, in God's eyes, a righteous man. He was a saved individual. And God can't fellowship with a believer who is out of fellowship with him. But in saying that, neither does God abandon those whom he loves. He does not forsake a true child of God. God still loved him, and so he sent these two angels. Again, verse 1, Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Now that phrase, sitting in the gate, speaks volumes because it was in the gate where the city fathers, where city business and legal matters took place. And there are many examples in Scripture, especially, say, the book of Ruth. In either case, that tells me that Lot is entrenched in the leadership of this place. He is on a point of prominence. He has pledged himself as a city father to preserve and uh, to affirm the laws of Sodom. That's the decision he made. Now, understand when Lot moved into this city, it wasn't this great place and he's a city father and it turns wicked. It was already a wicked place. Listen to these words from Genesis 13, 13. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. And if you study Lot's life, if you remember, he starts on the outskirts of Sodom, and that's what happens. You know, we we play with sin. We see how close we can get to it without sinning. And after a while, it kind of anesthetizes you. And by the time you reach Genesis 19, he's a city father there in the gates. And so he's sitting here on the gate, and he notices these two angels, and we're told when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground, and he said, "'Now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet, then you may rise early and go your way.'" Now, he has no idea what their mission is. He knows they're angels, but he thinks maybe they're just passing through as tourists, as businessmen, and they said, "'No.'" but we shall spend the night in the square. They said, in essence, we'll just camp out tonight. Thank you, but no thank you for your hospitality. Now, knowing the immorality that is so prevalent in Sodom, Lot knew that was not a wise or a safe thought. And so these guys are really testing Lot. We read in verse 3, Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So far, so good. But what follows is shocking. It's deviant, wicked, immoral behavior. Some of the most deviant behavior recorded in Scripture. Look at verse 4. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. Now, don't miss that. I'm calling this a prevalent sin. Men from all over the city, from every quarter, all ages, young and old alike. The wickedness was like leaven. It had permeated the culture, and that's what's happening in America. It's permeating our culture. Americans are more and more willing to accept this lifestyle as normal, and it shouldn't surprise us. If you're living a sexually compromised life as a heterosexual, how can you point the finger at a homosexual? And if you go home and you dull your mind week after week after week on sexual immorality and even homosexuality that is now being portrayed, even on channels like Hallmark in the commercials and in one wedding that they recently introduced in one of their storylines, if you feed on this week after week and month after month, The things that you will entertain yourself in, before long you will embrace. Now, understand, all across America, there are are state and federal laws now to protect this deviant behavior. But do not forget, 50 years ago in all 50 states, this behavior was illegal. But now we're writing laws to encourage it. Now, jot down 1 Timothy 1 9 and 10. The next time someone calls you narrow-minded for opposing legislation that affirms wickedness, you can remind them of this text of Scripture. There the apostle Paul reminds Timothy that laws are written, not made, that laws are not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Look, you wouldn't need a a speed limit law if everybody obeyed the speed limit, now would you? Laws are written against these behavior. Look, your argument this morning will not be with me. People get up and they leave during the service. Every time I address this, they sign the guest book when they came in. They didn't make it to the offering. And I call them, and yeah, you know, you you said homosexuality was a sin. Your argument is not with me. Do not miss what God is saying here. God tells us laws need to be written, not to condone this behavior, but to curb this behavior, because God knows it is wicked. Homosexuality is not some genetic predisposition that you're born with. Otherwise, God could not hold you as guilty. Just as being a murderer or a perjurer or a kidnapper is wrong, so it is wrong to commit homosexuality. Now look at verse 5 here in Genesis 19. And they called to Lot, the men of the city, they called to Lot and said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Here are these sodomites. They're unashamed of their lifestyle. They're calling, it's a Hebrew word, they're shouting, they're yelling into the house to send the two men out so that they can have sexual relations with them. Now, I know again, this sin is often softened even from this passage from liberal theologians and a growing number of evangelicals. Here's a picture of a young man by the name of. Jonathan Merritt. He's a freelance writer for Christianity Today. He writes for the Daily Beast. He's a sought-after speaker in Christian college campuses, conferences. He speaks to churches on spirituality and political issues and current issues. And, of course, uh, he came out in favor of gay marriage in 2012, yet people continued to let him write for places like Christianity Today which tells you something about the magazine and its compromise. Sadly, he's the son of a, of a pastor that really loves Christ, the former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, James Merritt. But he came out on August the 4th, just last month, on his birthday, as officially saying what people thought, that he was gay. And so he gave this post on Instagram. Let me read it to you. Today is my 39th birthday, which means I get one more trip around the sun before entering my next decade. I want to enter the second half of my life with more authenticity, alignment, and integrity than I exhibited in the first half. So today, I'm raising a glass to my full and complete self, a gay man beloved by God, who has endured the worst the world could throw at him and fought his way to health and wholeness. Now, here is Andy Stanley's response, a pastor of a large church in the Atlanta area. Many of you know him. I never allowed Andy Stanley's teaching to come in this church. ABF's leaders would ask me in decades. It's, he's never coming in. And some accused me of judgmental. One left the church over it. But he proved himself to be a liberal, didn't he? Denying the authority of the Old Testament. And he said this on the day that Merritt wrote these words. He said, "'Happy birthday, Jonathan. I'm so proud of you. I'm so honored to know you. Can't wait to see what God will accomplish through you in this season.'" Now I'm on Instagram. You'll never find me there because it's a code name because it's only for my kids and my grandchildren. And I almost never get into the fray of this stuff. It's just a waste of time. Like my son Jordan reminded me yesterday, he said, Dad, it's like casting your pearl for swine in most cases. But there were so many evangelical pastors who didn't call him to repentance. And so I wrote, happy birthday, Jonathan. I'm so proud of you. I'm so honored to know you. Excuse me, that's Andy Stanley's. (laughs) It was a short night. I don't usually sleep too well on Saturday nights. I usually get about two to three hours of sleep. Let me write what I wrote. God does love you and can forgive you, Jonathan. But you were not born this way. But you can be born again by the grace of God and changed praying for you today, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Well, I'll tell you, that that opened a firestorm. You know, they came out of the woodwork. And all these pastors and Christian leaders saying, happy birthday, when they should have said, you know, I'm glad it's your birthday. And I can't imagine how brokenhearted his father is. But they should have said, Jonathan, it's evil, and you need to repent. Now sadly, numerous so-called evangelicals affirmed his decision, and we have theological liberals today who wouldn't even claim to be evangelical, and they'll argue away passages that deal with the sin, and they'll use texts like Ezekiel 16. However, again, the Scripture is clear. In Jude 7, he calls this sin of homosexuality gross immorality. I want you to jot down Ezekiel 16 48 to 50. Ezekiel 16 48 to 50. They say that the sin of Sodom was that there was a relationship that was sought with the men of Sodom that was not invited by the two men, the two angels that came into Sodom. Lot's house. And so they say that the sin of Sodom was a sin of a lack of hospitality. And they use Ezekiel 16, as I live, declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. And of course, they're going to remind the reader that the word homosexual doesn't appear in this text. And that's how they twist the Scriptures. Remember, Peter said they'd twist the Scriptures to their own destruction. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. So God outlines for us the sins of Sodom. The first sin He mentions is pride, or the King James says arrogance. The Bible says that God is opposed to the proud. And I fear that some people listening to me today will not become a Christian. Why? Because they're proud. They think that somehow they can earn heaven and please God through their own human effort and merit, and you cannot. Christ came to save the helpless, Paul says in Romans 5. He came not for those who are well, but for those who are sick. But in addition to the sin of pride, the second sin is mentioned here is the sin of gluttony, or the new American standard renders it abundant food, The Old English says fullness of bread. That's God's way of saying they were thinking about the things of the flesh and not the things of the Spirit. And Paul describes such lost people in Philippians where their God is their stomach, their belly. Third, he mentions careless ease or idleness. And so the Living Bible paraphrases this, they were guilty of pride, too much food, and laziness. That's more and more of the United States of America. We have 10 million jobs that they cannot find workers for. And so you go to all these places and you just want some basic service and they say, please be patient, we can't find anybody to work. Why? Because the government is rewarding laziness. Fourth, we learn they were selfish and that they did not help the poor and needy. Now, the Bible is clear when you see a legitimate need, especially of a person who's a believer of the household of faith, you should do what you can to help that individual. God tells us in Proverbs that the one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord. And we help hundreds of families every month in our food pantry, and I thank you for those who contribute. And God says he'll repay such an individual. But then he caps it all off, and here it is, abominations. Verse 50, thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Now, what were these abominations? Ezekiel does not have to spell it out because he assumes the readers are familiar with Genesis 19. They were guilty, among other things, of sexual perversion. God had destroyed the Twin Cities. It was a known fact. It had been in the minds of the Hebrew people for centuries. I don't want you to be in the dark for a moment about how God feels about the sin of homosexuality. Jot down, if you would, Leviticus 18.22, Leviticus 18.22. There, Moses wrote, "'You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination.'" And so, by the way, when I wrote my comment on Instagram, among other responses was, is Leviticus and, you know, hey, pastor, because I put a link to a sermon I had preached on this subject, and so they discovered who I was, Pastor Carl. (laughs) And they said, well, you're not consistent. You know, Leviticus speaks about not eating shellfish. Do you eat shellfish? Leviticus speaks about not mixing two kinds of cloth together. Um, You know, do you follow that and on and on? And, And then they'll typically raised up, and Jesus never addresses the subject of homosexuality. Now, my response is very simple, and your response should be as simple as well, and that is the Bible distinguishes between the moral law of God and the ceremonial law of God. The ceremonial law that pictured the coming work and person of Christ and that distinguished the Jews under the old covenant has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. The only ongoing aspect of the law is the moral law. But even if someone couldn't figure that out or understand that, all you have to do is read the New Testament. And by the way, to say that Jesus never addressed the subject of homosexuality is sheer ignorance. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I did not come in Matthew 5.17 to abolish the law and the prophets. By the way, that would include books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy where this subject is noted. And then when Jesus spoke, About the sin of breaking a marriage, he defined what a marriage was. Now, the Supreme Court of the United States can redefine marriage and they can call it a marriage, but it's not a marriage. Abraham Lincoln used to say, you know, you can say if a dog's tail is a leg that the dog has five legs, but he doesn't. And you can redefine marriage, but it's not a marriage. And by virtue of his definition of marriage, Jesus spoke against the perversion of homosexual marriage. He said, have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And we'll see another major passage where he definitively recalled what took place in Sodom. Jot down this text, Leviticus 20 and verse 13, Leviticus 20, 13. There, God said, if there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, under the theocracy of Israel, and by the way, there was only one theocracy in the history of the world, where God personally, sovereignly ruled over a nation, namely Israel. And just like adultery... God said if someone was guilty of homosexuality, they would be put to death. Now, there is no such application today, but God was preserving the nation. And God put in a lot of checks and guardrails in order to protect the nation because it is through Israel that He's going to bring the Savior of the world. But God calls this a detestable act, just like Ezekiel calls it an abomination. And those who think otherwise are haughty. And so they came out of their closets in Genesis 19, just as people are today. Jot down this verse, 2 Peter 2.6. I already referenced it, but let me read it to you. There God tells us that He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live godly thereafter. By the way, every time God spoke through an apostle, that was Jesus speaking because in the upper room discourse, he told them that he would write Scripture through them. But they're an example. Listen to this verse, Jude 7. We don't usually say Jude 1 colon 7 because there's just one chapter. So if you're new to the Bible, that's why it looks like Jude 7, one chapter. Jude 7 teaches that by reducing Sodom to ashes, God gave a warning of eternal fire. He reminded us of what he thinks. He thinks. Please jot down Deuteronomy 22 in verse 5. There God said, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. By the way, this verse affirms, just like in Genesis 1, there's only two sexes, male and female. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. He's not saying a woman can't wear slacks. If you study the clothing... In the first century, you'll see there is a lot of parallels between what a man wore and a woman wore in their robe-like thing. But what he is speaking about is androgynous behavior, what some call today gender dysphoria, gender fluidity, or transgenderism. He is not prohibiting wearing a certain kind of garment as much as he is saying, by the way you dress and the way you look, you should not blur the sexes. And God calls the sin of homosexuality an abomination, just as he calls bestiality a, an abomination, just as he calls a man dressing up like a woman an abomination. Transgender behavior blurs the distinction between what God said in Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God gives clear evidence that He made us male and female. God is the one who determines gender. Now, we think we're smarter than God. And that's why Paul says the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And as Americans, we are making ourselves out to be utter fools, not to mention we are harming and abusing little children and teenagers in our school by teaching them that this is normal and natural behavior. There is no such thing as gender fluidity. And until 2013 to help people who thought this way, they called it gender identity disorder. They saw it as a disorder. And I want to say that children who are being taught this, I want to help those people. And most of the time, if they're left alone, they'll, they'll grow out of it. It's just the evil influence of adults Man, what what an awful thing to cause a child to stumble. Jesus said it's better to be drowned by a millstone than to cause a little child to stumble. But I want to help people like this, but that's not what our government is doing. We're not going to treat it as a pastor. That was the big issue, right, up there in Columbia that hundreds of you called about. No, we want to affirm this behavior, what we need is the wisdom from above, because by nature, we're a bunch of fools. And we need the wisdom of God. We need to have our minds calibrated with Holy Scripture. Listen, when God made you, Psalm 139 says, He knit you together in, his mother's, in your mother's womb. He made you male or female. God gave you the gender you are. It's, you're either male or female. It's not, it's not a both-and proposition. The Bible points to the fact that God made us different, that he might make us one, and he made us different because he has different functions for men and for women. A politician cannot determine the function of biology. God determines that. And when we deny God's sovereignty, when we deny God's word and what he says about it, we're blaspheming the living God. And so, you know, we've got all this talk about you know, bathrooms and who can use which one. And we had all these principals and assistant principals and like a dozen police officers who came in to meet with me because uh, they said, hey, you know, we had a crisis in the high school and there was a gas leak and we had to remove hundreds and hundreds of students, didn't have a place to go. This would be a safe place. Could, could they come if we had some kind of crisis of shooting something? I said, of course, we would welcome them with one exception. I said, if a man, a young man comes in, and he says he's a woman, he's going to use the bathroom of his birth. And if a woman says she is a man, she is going to use the bathroom of her birth. I don't care if Peter calls himself Patty or anything else. I said, and if you're in agreement with that and you put it in writing, I have no problem with it. I've yet to see a letter. It's not gonna happen, not on my watch. And so we have these sexual perverts and pedophiles who wanna go into restrooms where there's little children that does not represent their sex. And by the way, why a woman would want a man? And her restroom is beyond me. I used to clean restrooms in high school among the many jobs I had as I cleaned my father's office building. And I'll tell you, there's a big difference between the cleanliness of a male restroom and a female restroom. I mean, it's just yuck, ladies. I don't know why you'd want them in there. Hold your finger here. Turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I want you to write down Romans 1, 26 and 27, and I want you to turn there. Now, Romans 1, if you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then you come to the very first epistle, you're past the historical books of the Bible, and the first epistle is the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 1. Paul is describing people who hold down what they know to be true about their creator and how they've replaced their knowledge of God with one that they've created in their own minds. And so, he'll say in verse 22 that they profess to be wise, but they've become fools. Why? Because they've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. They've created a God in their own mind. And so, what we find in Romans chapter 1 is a contrast between what we might call the future wrath of God with present-day wrath. When you read about the wrath of God, most people just think of the eternal wrath of God in hell but there's actually different kinds of wrath that are expressed in Scripture. There's what we might call cataclysmic wrath. That would be like the flood. That would be like um, Sodom and Gomorrah being burned into oblivion. There's the coming tribulation wrath that will be unique during that seven-year period when God brings all kind of fury down from heaven designed to bring people to repentance. His final wake-up call... And then there's what we might call the wrath of God to come, the eternal wrath, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels from flaming fire. He's going to deal out retribution to those who don't know God. They'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Where? In that place we call the lake of fire. But then there's what we might call present-day wrath, and that's what Romans 1 is speaking of. Look, if you will, at verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Circle that word is, it's a present tense in the Greek New Testament, as reflected here in our English Bibles. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, please note, this is wrath that will not be revealed in the future, but this is wrath that is being revealed right now. Now, normally, again, we we think of the future wrath, but this is a current day wrath, and I don't want you to miss that. It's very important. There's a dimension of God's wrath that works quietly, almost invisibly, but if you know your Bible, it's quite visible. And that's what we're seeing in our day. You know, and sometimes, too, you read people's books, or you hear someone who will come, occasionally someone will call in the Bible line or meet the pastor, and they'll say, well, help me to understand, Pastor Carl, how the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament, and I think they've never read the Bible. All you have to do is read what Jesus said about hell. He said more about hell than he said about heaven, and he gave very descriptive terms. All you have to do is read about the coming tribulation period, especially in the Revelation. All you have to do is read about the future coming wrath of God, and you'll say, he's no different. And if you read the Old Testament carefully, you will find God's grace and compassion over and over and over again wanting to bring people to himself. And when you read Romans 1, you read of a current-day expression of the wrath of God. Paul said it this way. This is not unique. He said, in the generations gone by, Acts 14, 16, in the generations gone by, he, speaking of the Lord God, permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And that's what we find happening here, and it's what we find happening in America, and not just in America. This is now a global issue where sinners go their own ways. When a people refuse to acknowledge God as God, they suppress the truth of God in their thinking. Therefore, verse 24, three times over, God says he gave them over. Don't miss that. God gave them over. Verse 24, verse 26, and then in verse 28. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts, to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Stage one, when God abandons an individual or a nation, broadly speaking, when a nation refuses to honor God as God or give Him thanks. I remember I was in the fourth grade, Miss Weeks. She said, I've always taught that God created the world. But she said, now I am mandated to teach you evolution. Evolution. What were we doing with our little children in schools? We're suppressing the truth of God, and when you have a guy like Tim Keller who calls himself an apologist, who says that Genesis 1 and 2 is contradictory, and evangelicals are gobbling up his book, look, if you can't trust what the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2, neither can you trust what God says in Genesis 19. So we were suppressing the truth of God, that He is the Creator to whom we should give thanks. And when a nation does that, God gives them over to impurity. And so we began to smush God out of our thought life. And the sexual revolution began. And we saw the growing sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. And they were given over to the lusts that were in their hearts, to impurity in their body. Listen, the Bible says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord's. The opposite could be said. Cursed is the nation of the people who will not acknowledge God as God. And so we became more and more pornographic. And child abuse began to become Express in a greater way, and we had to legitimize abortion because it was convenient for someone who wanted to be immoral to get rid of the baby in their womb. Verse 26, stage 2, for this reason, the careful reader will ask, for what reason? When through the suppression of truth, a nation fails to acknowledge God as God, and God says, okay, I'll let you go your way. The Spirit of God doesn't stop. He keeps convicting. He convicts them in their sin and their sensuality, but they ignore that. Then God gives them over to stage two. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Had a young high school student going out the door after the first service, and no baptisms today, so I didn't have to rush out, and she said, Pastor Carl, in my high school, I play on the volleyball team. So many of the young ladies are lesbians. Yeah, women athletics. Better be careful when you put your kids on those athletic teams. Just like when you enroll your child in an art course or a music course. There's good people in all of those, but there's a lot of people who are living a deviant lifestyle. And she said, all these young women are arguing with me. Some are saying they're bisexual. Others are saying they're lesbian. You know, how do I answer that? I said, well, when you take all the air out of the balloon, what it basically comes down to is the Bible true. I said, go into the bookstore, tell them you can have a free copy, how to prove the Bible is true. Because if the Bible is true, then you have a plumb line by which you can measure any thought that you have. That's where it begins. There women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. This is plain and simple lesbianism. And history documents that a nation is on its last stage when women do this, because women tend to be more protective over their children. And when a women lose the virtue of a relationship between a man and a woman, When they involve themselves in degrading passions, the nation is gone. So he continues, verse 27, And in the same way also the men abandon the natural function of the women and burn in their desire one towards another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Again, I know more and more people are tolerant of this sin, but please make no mistake how God describes the sin of homosexuality. He calls it degrading passions, or literally the Greek reads passions of dishonor. He calls it natural, though you can go into the Buford Public Library and in the children's section, they define this as normal. You need to watch what your kids are reading. He says they're committing indecent acts. In, the, in their own persons is due the penalty of their error. In their own persons, they received in themselves, the King James says. What kind of penalty did they receive in themselves? I don't think it's so much disease in their body, though that would certainly be one consequence. But I think among other things, it's a rejection of male and female identity as God made us. I spent a lot of time, 12 years in campus ministry, and after that, local church ministry, and I've dealt with dozens of people saved out of homosexual backgrounds. And very often, when I meet them, there's a a loss of masculine identity or a loss of female mannerisms, females who act like males and men who act like women either outwardly or inwardly through the expression of their sexual drive. But understand, homosexuality is not a genetic predisposition. It's not some structural difference in your mind, in your brain. It's not some innate sexual desire. It is a perversion, it is an abomination, it is a detestable act, it is a degrading passion, it is error, it is gross immorality. Your argument is not with me. Your argument is with God, and either this book is absolutely true or it's not. That's what you have to ask and answer for yourself. And so when you see a society adopting sexual immorality and fornication and adultery and homosexuality as the dominant expression and way of life, you see a nation that is on its way down. And what do they have to look forward to? That brings us to stage three, verses 28 to 32, verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. Now, the third step in this downward spiral, God gave them over to a depraved and adikamos mind to do those things that are not proper. First, the heart is rotten, then the body follows, and then the mind goes. Immorality always leads to insanity. When people lose their morals, ultimately they lose their minds. They can't think straight. Common question I get on the Bible line, if you're not familiar with the Bible line, I know some weeks uh, we have 30 or more states that are live streaming in foreign countries. You can submit questions at searchthescriptures.org, or you can go on live Tuesdays at 11. And a common question I've had over the years is, what is a depraved mind? Well, it's the Greek word adikimos. Now, the word dokimos, without the alpha prefix, is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, to describe either a person or a metal that has been tested and found to be true. And so it's real gold, it's not fake gold, it's found to be true. Well, when you put the alpha prefix in front of it, the A, it changes its meaning. And that's the word that God is using here to describe a depraved mind. It's just the opposite. It's not a sound mind. It's an unsound mind. In fact, there's a play on words in the Greek New Testament. It says literally, they reprobated the knowledge of God, and God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Now, yesterday, we marked the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 tax, attacks, and, and our country was right to stop, to reflect of this horrendous act of terrorism The men and women who, at the risk of their own life, defended our nation, and then all those people who signed up to defend freedom and what is right. And most people acknowledge that as an act of terrorism, and they can list in their own minds several acts of terrorism that have happened in the history of our country. But I'm telling you, there are four major acts of terrorism that most people never acknowledge four that were made by the Supreme Court and have been affirmed by politicians. The first one is we kicked God out of the schools and we said no prayer. The second one is no Bible reading. (laughs) That was in first grade. It was already against the law, but still they read the Lord's Prayer every day until reality caught up with the law. And they said, no, no, not anymore. And as far as I know, my first grade teacher was not born again. Maybe she was, I don't know. But We still read the Lord's Prayer every day. And a short throw from there is we said, oh, you got the Ten Commandments that were on most walls in public schools in America, take them off. The third act of terrorism is when the Supreme Court legitimized abortion. Sixty million Americans are missing. Really much more than that because if those 60 million had grown up and gotten married, we'd have a lot more. We couldn't survive as a nation. You couldn't be getting your Social Security check even now if we weren't bringing people in from other nations. And sadly, the southern border is wide open. You say, well, that's compassion. That's not compassion. That's stupidity. It's a denial of what God says about borders. We should welcome the alien into the land, but there's a way in which you welcome them. But we legalized abortion, and now the sale of body parts to that wicked and vile organization Planned Parenthood, and just like the blood of Abel cries out, the blood of 60 million missing babies cries out, and then the fourth greatest act of terror that our Supreme Court did was they legitimized same-sex marriage what were they doing? They said, God is not God. God didn't create. We shouldn't pray to Him. We shouldn't acknowledge Him. We shouldn't read His Word. We shouldn't have His Ten Commandments. God is not God. Marriage is not marriage. Humans are not humans. The family is not family. And listen, there's no bomb. There's no terrorist attack, no assault that you could bring on a nation greater than these four that we did. And we have justices and we have politicians are doing everything in their power to protect what is evil. And so our own president, at least we know where he stands now, because he always said, Well, personally, I'm opposed against abortion, but I think it's a woman's right. But he came out two weeks ago and said, Life does not begin at conception. Look, I'm not a Republican because I agree with everything Republicans do, but I am registered as a Republican because it best reflects what God believes. I could not endorse a party that is so wicked and evil and would not want to meet Jesus at the judgment of the just, having voted for a politician that would endorse such evil. And so here is the secretary of transportation with his so-called wife. This was all over the internet last week. They have their twin babies. They sit in a hospital bed like they gave birth. And by the way, both of these men are unashamed of their so-called Christianity. In the words of Titus, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny Him. And so we have officials, pastors, rabbis, politicians, justices, who have supplanted the authority of God that belongs to God alone, and they are blaspheming God and blaspheming his church. And so God is giving them over to a reprobate, to a depraved mind. The the Russian Bible translates it, an upside-down mind. That's a good way to capture the Greek, where you call good evil and evil good. That's where our nation is. And when the conscience can no longer function when there is self-evident truth that God wrote into your heart and you can no longer see it, then you have what follows beginning in verse 29. I have a whole sermon on it. The 21 vices, and I stepped through carefully, each and every one. You can get it at searchthescriptures.org in our Roman series. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 32, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. That's the sad reality. Year after year after year as it goes by, these 21 vices are becoming prominent in America. That's all we have to look forward to, a nation that is in a moral free fall because we think we are smarter than God Almighty. And when a nation entertains itself on these things, they will readily approve these things. It's a prevalent sin. It's also a persistent sin. Point B on your outline, the sin of homosexuality was a persistent sin. Now, when the men of Sodom saw these angels, they wanted to commit filthy abominations with these two angels. They wouldn't take no for an answer. Verse 6, but Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers. He has no business calling them brothers, but he's, an, he's just oblivious to reality. Please, my brothers, don't act wickedly, verse 8. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like, only do nothing to these men in as much as they have come under the shelter of my roof. He thought, well, these are angels. I I, I can't let this happen to God's angels. I'll let it happen to my daughters. Oh, my. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien. He's not one of us. And already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against the door, and came near to break down the door. They're persistent. They're consumed with their lust. Again, they won't take no. That brings me to point C. The sin of homosexuality was a punishable sin. Not only was it prevalent and persistent in Sodom, it was a punishable sin. And so notice verse 10. When these angels who came again in the bodies of men, notice what they did. But the men, these angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. Now, angels, the Bible says, are physically stronger than men. An angel moved a two-ton stone at the tomb of Christ. And so they grab Lot, they drag him in the house… Verse 11, and they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. Now, do not miss the reaction of the men. That they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. They're blinded, but they're still trying to get in. This is a great expression of militant homosexuality. And we have many militant homosexuals in our nation, but let me just say they're not all militant homosexuals. I'm sure our secretary of transportation is probably a nice guy. And some homosexual people I meet, they're very very gentle, kind, thoughtful people. Not everyone who's a murderer is a Jeffrey Dahmer. Not everyone who's a homosexual does what these people do. And so sometimes you you meet some of these people and you say, you know, he's a really great person. I don't want to confront this. That's not loving them. That's doing them harm. Now, very quickly, I've gone too long. Point two, and we'll go through it quickly, the unwholesome sentiment of Sodom. Beyond the unholy sin of Sodom, there is the unholy sentiment of, of Lot, I say. And I say sentiment because the Bible says in the book of Proverbs, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In other words, your your behavior is the sum total of your thinking. And Lot's thinking had been corroded by the place in which he lived. And so I want you to notice first that Lot was a worthless witness. Look at what these two angels say to Lot here in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Whom else have you here? A son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because their outcries become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. But carnal Lot, he has little to no influence on his family. Verse 14, And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of the place, for the Lord will destroy the city but he appeared to his sons to be jesting. They thought old poor Lot was just joking, as one translation, that he was jesting. Why? Because this is unusual for Lot. He never really exercised spiritual leadership, and that's what men who are out of fellowship do. They're, they're not exercising spiritual leadership in your, their home. And when there comes a time when they really need to do it, no one's there to listen. And you may be a dad, and you have compromised your own heart, Just the things you're even watching on TV. Maybe you're visiting pornographic websites, and you think you're going to have spiritual authority with your children and with your wife. He was a worthless witness. Lot was also weak-willed. He was weak-willed. We read now in verse 15, and when morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, "'Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, "'lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city.'" But he's numbed by reality, verse 16. "'But he hesitated.'" The Hebrew verb means he lingered. "'He hesitated.'" "'So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife "'and the hands of his two daughters, "'for the compassion of the Lord was upon him, "'and they brought him out and put him outside the city.'" I mean, here's his family. They're kind of dilly-dallying around. They have to be dragged out. Maybe his wife said, man, I need to get my jewelry. Maybe the daughter said, man, we need to wear something appropriate. Maybe Lot said, I need to go get my bank book. They're just dull. They're a spiritual disaster ready to come on from heaven, verse 17. And it came about when they had brought them outside that one said, escape for your life, do not look behind you, and do not stay anywhere in the valley, escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. Even Lot, he, he lacks a deep respect for spiritual authority. Look at his response, but Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, he's debating with God's angels. Verse 19, now behold your servant, has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness which you have shown me by saving my life but I cannot escape to the mountains lest the disaster overtake me and I die now behold this town is near enough to flee to and it is small please let me escape there is it not small he's referring to a town called Zohar in the word Zohar in Hebrew means little please let me escape there that my life may be saved and he, the angel, said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overflow the, overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. Lot, he's moving slow. He is moving argumentatively, because that's what sin does when you're out of fellowship. It just kind of encapsulates your heart, and you become dull. That's where a lot of Christian pastors and Christian church members are today. Third, Lot had a wayward wife. He had a wayward wife. Remember, the men clearly, definitively gave instructions to Lot and his family, escape your life, don't look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley, escape to the mountains, lest you be swept away. But we read here in verse 23, notice, the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. The sky was so filled with sulfur and burning asphalt that the Hebrew uses the expression "rained." And he overthrew those cities and the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew in the ground. I mean, this was a cat- catastrophe of monumental proportions only to be equaled by the great flood. People debate the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some think it's the location of the Dead Sea. Some think it's Jordan adjacent to it and all the asphalt and sulfur residue flowed down into the Dead Sea or the Dead Lake and killed it. Absolutely no life in the Dead Sea. It's actually the single lowest place on the face of the earth. When I go there, often, if we have time to point it out, there's a rock structure that the Jews for millennia have called Lot's wife because it looks like a woman frozen, quote-unquote, in salt. Wherever it is, we read in verse 26, it's an amazing verse. And remember, what God did in Sodom is a reminder, and example of the coming lake of fire and brimstone. Verse 26, but his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Her heart was back there in the Twin Cities. She looked back and she was forever destroyed. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, are you by your actions condoning the LGBTQ plus lifestyle? Now, if you didn't know before you came how God feels about this sin, I hope you know today. Don't be deceived by some pastor, some leader some priest, some politician, that this is some acceptable or alternate lifestyle. It's not a gray area in the Bible. God could not have said it any more clearly than He did. And sadly, there are Christians who are contributing to this sin by being members of churches or denominations that are compromising. And if you're listening to me today, wherever you may be in the world, and you're in a church or denomination where they won't take a stand... Most of the main lines have already come out in favor of gay marriage. We have two churches in our town that do gay marriages. Then you've got denominations like the United Methodists. They haven't officially come out against it, but you've got United Methodist pastors all across America doing gay marriages, and no one will discipline them. Look, if you are a part of a church or a denomination that is compromising, you are contributing to the problem. You better find a church that honors the word of God. 2 Corinthians says, therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. You don't want to condone what God calls an abomination. And again, one of the reasons this is becoming more and more acceptable is because Christians are not taking a clear, definitive stance on this. We have sitcoms and documentaries and talk shows that openly promote all kinds of immorality. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, the Scripture says. And if you continually subject yourselves to these things that God calls evil, you're dulling your spiritual sensibilities. Look, if you can't speak up as a pastor, when you're still free to speak up, what are you going to do when we lose our freedom? because that day is coming. And when we refuse to speak up for what's right, it's unloving. The light has lost its light. The salt has lost its saltiness, and it's good for nothing anymore, Jesus said, but be trampled underfoot by men. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for the battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be made known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Your word, your lifestyle sends a message. Secondly, what is your attitude towards those who are in bondage to these sins? That's the second application. Now, we need to be careful as Bible-believing Christians that while we hate this sin, we don't hate the sinner. We don't agree, we don't condone this lifestyle, but at the same time, we need to extend truth, we need to extend hope, we need to extend the forgiveness of God. I told that young teenage girl, I said, these friends who are on your volleyball team, they need to be forgiven. They're covered over in immorality, they need to find forgiveness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, so do you not know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's premarital sex, idolaters, idolatry is anything you put above God. Paul can say greed is idolatry. Adulterers, that's extramarital sex, effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. He notes here two classes, effeminate and homosexuals. The word effeminate is the word malachoy. It's a technical term that's used to refer to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. And so, the Net Bible renders it a passive homosexual partner. It can be used of a male prostitute who dresses up in the clothing of the opposite sex. And so, biblically, malachoy would also encompass transgender people in our day. And if you don't remember anything else about transgenderism, Just remember, you can no more change your sex than you can change your race. I don't care what some doctor, doctors who perform, they, they ought to be kicked out of the profession. I don't care what some doctor may do for greed and money or because he's also a reprobate to change the mechanics of your body. Gender is not fluid. And then the word homosexual, and he tells us plainly that if this is the direction of someone's life, don't be deceived. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They'll never see the inside of God's kingdom. But the next verse says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Let me say it as clearly and as plainly as I can, that the blood of Christ covers the sin of the fornicator, the adulterer, the drunkard, the thief, the self-righteous, and the homosexual. He can forgive anyone. We are all sinners. We all need forgiveness. God does not teach that this is some sin that cannot be forgiven. You know, and yet in the church, you know, if a, if a drunk gets saved, if a drug addict gets saved, if an adulterer gets saved and his marriage is healed, oh, you know, that's somebody we need to see. But just let it be found out that you are homosexual and you get saved. Ooh. You better be careful. And we have a warped view of the way God thinks of people. But listen, when you're saved, it doesn't mean you can't struggle with this sin anymore. If a person is saved out of multiple adulteries and they're born again, that doesn't mean the temptation to have sex with a person of the opposite sex immediately is gone. No, but if any man is in crisis, a new creation, there's a new hatred for that and a new desire to carry on a new direction. And if someone is saved out of this inverted background, it doesn't mean that the temptation dissolves the next day. But there's a new hatred for it. And so contrary to Sam Alberry, who is being paraded across Christian platforms and now an adjunct professor at Cedarville College at Christian University, Now these feelings can be embraced, and as long as you don't act on them, you can, you know, physically even touch your same-sex partner as long as you don't go all the way. That's evil. Needs to be rejected. As much as heterosexual lust needs to be rejected, new choices need to be made. And listen... I've been in the ministry since 1978, and by God's grace, I've led several dozen homosexual people to Christ, some of whom I've performed their marriage to someone of the opposite sex. Finally, what type of person are you? What kind of person are you? Again, don't say that Jesus never spoke on homosexuality. He couldn't have said it more clearly in Luke 17. He's speaking about the coming of the Son of Man, not the rapture, but the second coming. The rapture precedes the second coming. And he said, just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall also be in the days of the Son of Man. In other words, there's a parallel between Jesus' second coming and the atmosphere of the days of Noah. A few verses later, he says, it was the same as it happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not one of you who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Now think about the great flood. Just before God poured out His wrath upon the whole earth he delivered the true believers into the safety of an ark. And just before God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah, he took Lot and his two daughters and put them safely in Zoar. And just before the Antichrist comes before the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming, God will remove his people. And when Jesus comes again, again, there will be a parallel between the coming of the days of Lot and the days of Noah. Sin will be prevalent. Men's hearts will grow cold. Lawlessness will increase. There'll be moral permissiveness, like in the days of Noah. There'll be moral perversion, like in the days of Lot. Remember, no prophecies needed for the second for the, for the rapture. Only the second coming is a prophetic event. Israel's in the land. That's an end times prophecy. The days of Noah, the days of Lot are upon us. God is setting the stage, which should remind you the rapture is that much closer. And when Jesus comes back, remember, there'll be just three classes of people. First, there'll be the Noah type of people. Noah pictures a spirit-filled Christian. He loved the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. He was not a perfect man. But the direction of his life was to please the living God. And so the Lord saved him and he walked into a brand new world. And when Jesus comes back, Spirit-filled people will go into a brand new world in his millennial kingdom. But then there's a second kind of person, and it's the Lot kind of people. And the Lot type of people, they, they represent the Christian who's out of fellowship with the Lord. I mean, how did the angels have to deal with Lot? They had to drag him along. And he lacked any moral authority in his life, and he had little to no influence on his family. And with the exception of his two daughters, and though he got them out of Sodom, he never got Sodom out of them. And Lot had deep regrets when he met the Lord in heaven. There's a third class of people. Jesus warned, remember Lot's wife. She had her heart back in Sodom. She longed for what Sodom had to offer. And she looked back, and suddenly was frozen in her fallen state for all of eternity. The Noah type, when Jesus comes back, they'll experience great reward. The Lot type of believers, when Jesus comes back, they'll experience great regret. But the Lot, wife kind of people, they will experience great wrath for all of eternity. And so what kind of person are you? Our Father, I thank you today. I preached a long time, but it needed to be said. And I pray for every person listening and for those who will listen in the years to come until Jesus returns, that your people might blow a clear bugle sound, calling people to repentance. I pray for the dads and moms that have compromised lifestyles, who are going through all the motions, but they lack any moral authority. Help them to get their hearts right today. I thank you for the Spirit-filled believers like Noah, whose direction of their life is consistent. Help them to speak up and to preach what is right and true and pleasing to you. And I pray for those who are like Lot's wife. Some who, as I have been preaching, they've been arguing with me in their thinking. Because they've never received a regenerate mind, what you call the mind of Christ, and they can't embrace spiritual truth. If for no other reason, because it is in this book, help them to acknowledge evil for what it is, that they might flee to a Savior and find forgiveness. May this church always be open to everyone of every walk of life and every kind of sin, that we would be a lighthouse extending the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.